Hi, I'm Becky O'Connor. And I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look at how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, after weeks and months of economic turmoil, compounded by Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's controversial mini-budget, we're looking at investment mistakes, including ones we've made ourselves and common industry mistakes too. But first of all, I want to say there's no judgment here. So when we say mistakes, we could equally use the word missteps uh, because we all make mistakes as we go along. We're all learning um, personal finance. Um, it's a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I don't think that, you know, although we're experts, we're immune from um, from from making mistakes. Completely agree, Becky. Um, I think overall, the biggest investment mistake you can make is giving up. Um, you know, I think it's important if you make a mistake, the important thing is to try and not make the same mistake twice and uh, keep an open mind. Um, mistakes, after all, they're part of the learning process. And um, overall, it will make you a more successful investor in the future. Yeah. And there's things that you can control and there's things that you can't. And obviously, you know, in difficult times when the economy is quite rocky and difficult to predict and turbulent, um, you can end up making more mistakes. But they're not, not entirely just your fault, is it? There's lots of things going on. Um, so there's some things that are more in your control and some things that aren't. And I think, you know, perhaps we can blame ourselves a little bit when things are going wrong. Like at the moment, um, you know, we're having conversations at home about why are our energy bills so high? What can we do? What aren't we doing? And I'm thinking, it, it. although there are things that we can still do, it's not just our fault as a family that we've left the odd light on here and there. There is a much bigger picture going on too. Um, but I mean, thinking about what we can control, I um, wanted to share with you, Kyle, um, some of the things that have gone wrong for me in the past, which I take full responsibility for or maybe 60% responsibility for, because I think there's still some element of I should just go easy on myself and recognise that um, I, I didn't have perfect perfect information at the time that I made these mistakes. But um, my biggest one was actually um, when I took some voluntary redundancy money um, from my former employer when I was 30 um, and didn't think carefully about what was going to be happening next in my life. And um, what happened quite soon after that was that I actually um, became pregnant and um, we needed to buy our first home. But at the time I took the redundancy money, I didn't really know that those things were on the card. So it was um, a tidy sum and I did spend most of it. I left a small amount for a deposit for our first house, uh, but not enough really. And um, although, you know, you live and learn and we're okay, we're fine where we are now, um, I do wish that I'd held on to that money. Well, of course, the um, the benefit of hindsight is a is a wonderful thing. Um, as you as you mentioned there, Becky, um, it's it's I think it's important for people to get their heads around um, something. Actually, Martin Lewis he talks about quite often um, is um, don't confuse a good decision with a bad outcome. I mean, like for example, at the moment, obviously mortgage rates, as we discussed in the uh, in the podcast last week, um, you know they're going up in response to um, expectations that interest rates are going to increase. Um, but if, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're fixing your mortgage now because it's up for renewal um, and you, you know, you're doing so because you want peace of mind, then that's arguably that's a good decision. Um, whereas, say if you fix for five years 
um, and then in a year or two years' time, interest rates, they start to fall, then your mortgage rate looks comparatively expensive versus where the base rate is, then that doesn't mean that you making a good a good decision um, was a bad decision for your um, set of personal circumstances. And I think, you know, the same principle that applies to investments as well. You know, you can you can do all your homework on a company, you can drill into the financials, take a view on its valuation, um, take a view on whether its dividends are sustainable or not. And then you can buy um, that, that particular company, you know, you think it's good value. And then something left field could happen, you know, um, the chief executive of that company could suddenly leave. There could be um, political intervention, which is bad for um, the industry or sector that, that company operates in. But that doesn't mean that your decision to invest was a bad decision. Instead, it was a, it was a bad outcome. And um, yeah, that's something Martin Lewis talks about. And um, I do think about it quite a lot when it comes to investments and personal finance in general. Yeah, I think that's a very kind perspective. And one thing that I do often wonder about with myself is whether I'm making a decision based on emotion or the cold hard facts. And I have talked to um, friends about this, and particularly when it comes to money, you know, there's um, an element sometimes of panicking or or being over-cautious. And it's where your um, outlook on life or your personality almost gets in the way of um, the sensible thing. And I think one um, one good example of that, which I know happens to lots of people, not just me, but again, it's going back to one of the things that I think I did wrong early on was I switched my old workplace pension to a um, cautious, low risk one when I was in my early 20s. And um, now... I realized that that was absolutely not the right mix of assets for me to be in at the very beginning of my pension saving journey. But at the time, when I didn't know anything about pensions, I'd just come out of university, it seemed to make sense to me that because it was my life savings and it was a really important pot of money that I should look after it to the best of my ability. And I didn't understand that that meant, you know, possibly lower returns, pretty much definitely lower returns. And I did relatively quickly correct that a few years later. But that's one of those ones where it's imperfect knowledge. um, And because it's a pension, you do something with it, and then you forget about it for years and years. That can be quite a costly mistake. But again, it's one that you can't really blame yourself for, can you? Sticking to default pension funds, um, the situation I found myself in was that, um, you know, even though I work in this industry as a you know financial journalist, I put put off for a number of years, um, you know, taking action on the um, the pension fund that was selected by the um, by the pension company, the default pension fund. And when I um, got round to do my homework on it, I realised that um, the way it was investing was too cautious, really, for for a my risk appetite and also my age. It could invest um, forty to sixty percent in shares with the balance investing in bonds. Um, but for me, I mean, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I wanted a higher allocation to shares. Um, you know, I've got you know a thirty to forty year time horizon. Felt like I could afford to be more adventurous. So um, I then took action, and I uh, switched the pension accordingly into a um, into a fund, a passive fund actually, which um, can invest up to a hundred percent in global shares. Yeah, and, and this is it's a really good example because I think a lot of people when they're looking at risk 
they're thinking, what's my personal risk appetite as a person? What's my personality rather than what age am I? And, you know, what's best for the term of my investment? And um, am I going for growth or am I going for income? And it's not really, it's not really about your personality as such. And I think that must be one that lots of people um, can empathize with, either because they've stuck with the default strategy that wasn't the right growth approach for their age or because they did something like I did and moved it to a cautious fund. And I think I probably did miss out on quite a bit of investment growth as a result of that. But I suppose, you know, it's not the worst mistake in the world because I'm fine and my pension fund is still okay. But it's just that doing things like that, you making things harder for yourself along the way without even realising sometimes. Um, And the difficulty with pensions is, of course, that they just, you know, you're not really thinking about them very much. So if you do make a misstep, you're likely to be stuck with it for a few years, aren't you? I think with risk as well, I mean, I think from the stock market's perspective, it's important to remember that, you know, if you invest, you're not given a free lunch. Um, You know, if you don't want to take any risk at all, then cash savings is the route to go down. Um, However, of course, you know, as we know, um, cash, it's not completely risk-free because um, inflation eats into the returns. Um, so I think it's important to bear in mind that, you know, with investing, it's get rich slow rather than get, get rich quick scheme. Um, but I think, unfortunately, there's a tendency, especially for those that are younger, um, perhaps a bit more impatient. You know, they want to make, you know, big returns over a short period of time, which um, I'm afraid this very rarely happens. Yes, you might get lucky, you know, you might buy a smaller company share at the right time that um, performs very well over a short time period. But in the main, you know, investing, it's a long-term game. And, um, you know, you want your investments to hopefully over the long term at least outpace inflation. Um, you know, some of my friends, you know, they've over the years, I mean, hopefully they're um, not listening to this podcast when I say this. Um, I'm not, not naming any names, but... Um, you know, I've friends that, you know, they've used spread betting websites, you know, they've, you know, invested in a cryptocurrency. You know, they, they both seem like a quick way to make a fortune and, a, you know, a quicker way than sort of the ordinary way of, you know, buying shares or funds and waiting for them to hopefully rise. But um, they are very risky, uh, much more than investing in sort of conventional funds or investment trusts or in shares individually. One thing I do find is that um, when talking to friends about investment, which doesn't happen that often, but with bit with the Bitcoin craze, it has happened a bit more often because more people have been buying Bitcoin or talking about it um, freely with friends. And you kind of hear about how great it is when things are doing well, but you don't necessarily hear from your friends about how much they've lost, which, you know, I, I do think is generally we need to talk a bit more about things that we've done wrong and mistakes, particularly with investing, so that um, people can benefit from that experience by by not doing it themselves. And I'm, I'm way too polite to ask my friends how much money they've lost on Bitcoin, by the way, but I do want to know. I'm not going to ask. I mean, over the, over the past uh, decade, there's only been two times where the sort of usual conversations in the pub have um, turned from football to investing. And one of them was the sort of crypto craze a couple of years ago, especially when Bitcoin got up to you know, over $40,000 per Bitcoin. Um, and the other one was when uh, Royal Mail IPOed in 2013. Um, that, that drew a lot of excitement. And um, a lot of my friends put money into Royal Mail. But um, I'd say arguably they were, you know, the, the motivation for buying was uh, it was short termist. They wanted to get in and get out pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I, I tried to stress that, you know, 
investing is a long term game, as I just mentioned. And the sensible thing is to is to invest for the long term. Um, that's why I stick to my sort of um, area competence and mainly invest in funds and investment trusts. But that's not to say I haven't personally made mistakes. Um, you know, earlier on in my career, um, I one of the first funds that I bought, um, I bought and I didn't I didn't fully understand its investment strategy. Um, in short, you know, it was it was it was essentially a hedge fund that um, retail investors could buy. Um, it, among the things it could do, it could short, which means that you know if a if a company's share price falls, then the fund profits from that. Um, and I was drawn to it because you know I was looking at its returns, and over one, three, five years, it was looking a lot better than its competitors. So I was drawn in by past performance, which I now have learned you shouldn't do. You know, past performance—it's not a guide to the future. Um, and what happened to me was over a short period, over over a one month period, it fell very heavily, like 20, 25% over one month, which is very uncommon for a fund, you know, because it's investing in, a, in, you know, a number of shares, not just one share to give it diversification. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand why it declined so sharply. And for that reason, I, um, I moved swiftly to, um, to cut my losses. And then from then on, you know, I've decided I'm only going to invest in conventional funds and investment trusts that I can understand and it will hopefully over the long term um, deliver for me. I think investing in what you understand is, is a really, really good strategy. Um, and I mean, on a, on a slightly sort of related um, mistake that I made when I was in my 20s and I was having um, like a surge of enthusiasm for investing and I'd read a piece about platforms and um i'd read all about a fixed fee platform which is no, is no longer around actually but it sounded so good the review of the platform was so good i thought all right that sounds brilliant that sounds like the best platform i'm gonna move my money there but i didn't have very much money so that fixed fee was actually eroding my very small pot i support um quite significantly but also those were the days of um high exit fees so I was trapped in and basically I wasn't at the time able to put enough in to compensate for the fact that these fees were just eroding and eroding the pot. And eventually I did get out. I realised I felt quite ashamed of myself actually that I'd done that because it seemed like such an obvious mistake to make. But I'd just been sucked in by this really good review. Anyway, I did get out um, because they increased the fee. So they had to give a, a an exit fee free period to people on the platform so I very quickly um, rushed for the exit and um, picked a percentage platform which was right for me when I just had a you know a few thousand pounds in my ISA um, but that was one that was you know it's very unfortunate when you mis- make a mistake like that and then you're locked in and I don't think it happens so much now but there probably are still instances where you need to be careful that, you know, you're not making a decision that you, you have to stick with because of some terms and conditions for years, potentially. Um, which is, yeah, which is what could have happened to me if it hadn't increased the fee. And related to um, charges, I mean, when it comes to funds, I mean, and, and, and platform fees, fees as well, charges is the only thing that, you know, investors can control at the outset. Um, and, you know, it is very easy to overlook costs um especially when they're quoted as a percentage um but you know even a relatively small percentage difference it, it can make a big difference in um, pounds and pence 
over the long term. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, there's there's been you know plenty of innovation now, and I think maybe it was easier in my in, in my defence, uh, you know, fifteen or so years ago to um, make mistakes like that because there was. Um, uh, less product innovation around, so you could, um, you know, easily get end up on the wrong deal for you. Um, and you know, I do think give credit to the industry that there's a bit more engagement now on things like pensions as well. So perhaps, um, you know, somebody in their early twenties now would be less likely to make the mistake of going for the cautious, cautiously managed pension fund in the way that I did, because there is that bit more information out there about risk and you know how you should invest when you're younger um but having said that I still think there's you know there's there's plenty plenty of mistakes out there to make and I think um one you've mentioned before Carl was we were talking about junior ISAs um last week and I know you said um in the past that you're not sure about whether they were the right thing for you to do yeah, so I've got you've got two young children, and um, they both got a junior ice of each. Um, but again, with hindsight, I kind of wish that I just used a portion of my adult stocks and shares ISA um, for their investments. Um, because I mean, I, I knew this when I took when I took the junior ices out. I knew that obviously um, with a junior ISA, you've got no control at all. Uh, you know, when when my kids turn eighteen, then they can spend. The investments that have been accrued over all those years, um, on whatever they like, you know, they could they could buy a car, go to Ibiza if they want, um, hopefully not, um, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, ideally I'd like them to you know continue investing and um, use the money towards um, you know a house deposit or something like that, um, but you know, the, you know, as soon as you take out a junior ISA, you're effectively cutting a key for your child to open when they turn eighteen. Um, I think with with the ice allowance being at twenty thousand, you know, I'm not I'm not going to max out the ice allowance. So, um, so and you know, most people aren't either. Um, so, um, I think I think I'd have, I think I'd have preferred to have the control. Really, um, it's again, but it's something I knew about. But I mean, I just obviously I've I've made that mistake really, and um, I think what I'm going to do going forward is um, I'm going to. Um, Use my stocks and shares ISA um, and earmark it for you know a bit a bit of the ISA for both of them, and then the junior ISA will be there, and I'll just but I won't contribute more to it. Yeah, that's an easy one to correct in a way, isn't it? You just swap it over, swap the contribution over. I think I've been giving my children too much pocket money. I think that's my my current mistake, and I don't know how to unravel it now because um, they've got used to a certain amount. So the younger one gets five pounds a week and the older one gets 10 pounds a week. And they do have to do stuff for that. Like they have to be good. But I think I should be asking them to do more for that amount of money. And they're quite good at saving it. Um, and I do think it's important for them to learn early on as well from their mistakes, like spending too much of their um, pocket money and, you know, experiencing that awful feeling of not having any and, you know, it is important for them as well to learn from that feeling. Um, but equally, yeah, I think I give them too much. But taking it away just seems like a bit of a punishment now. So I'm a bit stuck there. So if anyone's got any ideas on um, how to get out of that one, I'm all ears. There's never been as much information about, um, you know, investment mistakes, how to become a better investor. There's been tens of thousands of words written on the subject. But um, I mean, myself included, um, people still make the same mistakes over and over again, um, but in terms of um, in terms of funds, I think 
one of the ones that um, happens quite regularly is that people buy too many funds. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, it's it's a big topic. This, but I mean, in short, I mean, people buy. Um, you know, it's 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 sensible not to buy just one or a couple of funds because you want to gain diversification. Um, and what this means is that you're spreading your investment risk far and wide, um, and that's achieved through investing in a, in a mix of um, different types of funds that invest in different types of asset classes, um, primarily shares, bonds, maybe property, infrastructure. Um, and you know the, the theory of diversification, it, it, while it works in practice, um, the, the trap that um, you want to avoid falling into, it's known as diversification. I don't know whether I don't know whether that's actually I don't know whether that's classed as a word in the Oxford uh, dictionary. Probably not. Um, it's probably a word that's just been invented um, by the financial industry. But um, I mean, it sounds better than saying inefficient diversification. So diversification that occurs if you buy too many funds that are similar. For example, buying five or six UK funds. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- while these funds, they, they may invest differently. You know, they, they might have a different investment style. Some might, you know, target uh, growth shares. Some might target value shares. Some might have a dividend approach. The risk is, if you buy a number of funds investing in the same region, then the investor, they can end up owning most or even all of the companies in the index. Mm-hmm. So you're running the risk here of replicating the market. Yeah. And um, that is something that can be done much more cheaply and more efficiently through an index fund or an exchange trader fund, which is an ETF. Um, so I think a lot of care needs to be taken there, really. Um, yeah. in term, and, and, you know, I mean, unfortunately, um, you know, we've had this question. I've had this question a lot over the years. Um, how many funds should I invest in? There's no magic number. Um, but I think if you've, if you've got over 20, over 25 then you need to take a hard look at all of the funds and make sure that they're giving you something different from one another and that you know that they are they're not being too similar basically it comes back down to giving something your time and care and taking the time to research something because once you've bought that you don't ideally want to sell it again do you, you want to make the right decision from the very beginning and you know be able to maintain that conviction with what you've chosen and um, feel comfortable that you're well diversified from the very beginning so you're not constantly feeling like you're correcting mistakes of the past within your portfolio and adding more and taking some out and I mean if only you know you can give it the time and attention from the very beginning then you might be able to avoid that diversification problem. Yeah, the, the rule of thumb is that, you know, you should, you know, if you check your portfolio a couple of times a year, then that's a, a useful sort of tidy up exercise, you know, take a look at what investments are performing well um, and consider potentially taking some of those profits um, if if indeed it's hopefully gone up. And then, um, you know, taking a look at some of your losers um, and, you know, taking a view on whether um, the prospect for that fund or that share whether you think on a three to five year view it will recover its poise, if you know if you've still got a confident outlook um, on that particular investment, it might be prudent to actually attempt to try and buy low and um, you know top up some of the exposure. Um, so selling your winners um, and investing the proceeds into some of your losers, it's known as rebalancing, and um, it's a way of um, reducing risk in your portfolio. What if it's all gone down, there, Carl? 
Well, I mean, that's hopefully not the case. But I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of people this year will have seen probably most of their investments go down. Um, there's, there's only been a small number of winners. Um, but again, as, as, as we mentioned earlier on in the podcast, um, it's remembering that you've got to take a long term view. And, you know, and as, and as we mentioned in last week's episode, the minimum time period for investing is five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so just come back to my point earlier that I made. You know, it's just important to remember that investing is not a quick, rich scheme. It's yeah, a, yeah. hopefully a get-rich-slow strategy over the long yeah. term. Um, that's a it's a really good final point to uh, leave people with. Um, but also, I, I would also like to invite people to um, get in touch with any mistakes that you feel you've made in the past and what your lessons learned were, because we might cover them in a future episode um and just left to say really thanks for listening to this episode of on the money if you enjoyed it please follow the show in your podcast app and tell a friend about it if you get the chance we'd be very grateful if you could leave us a quick review or a rating in your podcast app too and keep your questions and talking points coming via twitter at ii on the money or email otm at ii.co.uk And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.